Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Paul Stephen, my colleague here at UVA Law. He's a comparative and international law expert, and he's author of the new book, The World Crisis in International Law, The Knowledge Economy, and the Battle for the Future, which was recently published by Cambridge University Press. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mike. So with the, you know, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, unrest in global energy markets, the, you know, the ongoing turmoil associated with COVID, uh, we, we do seem to have plenty to worry about these days. Um, and I take the book project in part to be an excavation of, of the root causes of the current state of affairs. My takeaway, very broadly, my thumbnail version, my takeaway, um, was that the, was um, the project of what you call in the book international liberalism uh, was for a long time mutually reinforced uh, by the growth of another phenomenon, which is the knowledge economy, but that ultimately features of the knowledge economy have kind of arisen that undermine the international liberal project. And the result is that international institutions are failing and maybe the project of peace and prosperity is failing as well, or at least we're, we have reason to be worried. Um, given the focus of the podcast on environmental issues, I would like to talk uh, at some point about what all this means for climate change, which you do t- um, touch on in the book. But maybe to just get our feet under us, let's start with some definitions. So one is, is that is that sketch rough, is roughly fair? Uh, and maybe, you know, what are you referring to when you talk about international liberalism and, and, a, and a concept like the knowledge economy? So you said it very well, uh, Michael, uh, probably better than I could. Uh, the only thing that uh, I, I would add to the equation is a liberal democracy at home. So I think there mm-hmm. is a strong connection between liberal democracy at home and liberal internationalism and the knowledge economy, as I understand it, has been undermining both, even though the liberal project and the knowledge economy have a lot in a uh, lot to share. And so, when you talk about, well, let's start with the like knowledge economy. So, what are we talking about when when you refer to to that? Obviously, knowledge is an important part of the economy; it has been for a long time. Um, you know, what's different now than say, you know, obviously intellectual property has been with us for a long time. What, what, what has shifted over the last, uh, you know, several decades um, to, to bring into shape, you know, this force that you're calling the knowledge economy? Yeah, so uh, you're right that the insight is actually fairly old. Uh, I mean, the, the formula that economists uh, use is that uh, economic growth is tied to uh, capital, labor, and X. And X being called uh, innovation because we don't know what else to call it. And uh, over the last 50, 60 years, I, I think from the scholarly perspective, we've gotten more insight into uh, what we mean when we talk about uh, innovation. Uh, what it looks like and what its characteristics are. And one of the reasons why we've been, uh, economists have been as focused on this as they have over the last 50, 60 years is because it by any measure has had a significant impact in the structure of how we do things, uh, both in terms of, of production and of products. That's to say, we increasingly, the world increasingly uses knowledge as an input, as a factor 
uh, adding value to things. And also, uh, if it's a valuable input, then you would expect us to produce more of it. And we also see knowledge as a product in the economy. Uh, so putting it at a very abstract level, uh, the knowledge economy is the uh, I- increasing reliance on uh, a conceptual approach to the world as opposed to manipulating physical things uh, as a way of adding value to what, in a very broad sense, uh, we in the world make. Hmm. Um so is the is the end state of the of the of the knowledge economy like the metaverse where we don't manipulate anything in the world? All we manipulate is symbols and ownership and NFTs and 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 that's that's the whole you know that's some huge part of the economy. Is is that the in extremist version of the knowledge economy? Yeah, so in extremist that I might even take it off the table as <laughs> as uh, so far in the distance that we can't you know really talk about it in any. Uh, at least analytical fashion. It's a, a great exercise of imagination, but uh, I think that's a little, with all due respect to uh, uh, Facebook, I think that's a little, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Microsoft, right? It's Microsoft. It, that's, Facebook uh, is meta. I mean, everyone's yeah. in the space to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I think we don't have to go down the road quite that far. I mean, I use as an example, I think, of a, 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 a very interesting facet of the knowledge economy is containerized shipping. Mm. I mean, the tech is uh, pretty uh, uninteresting. It was mostly developed by the 1920s, but it wasn't until the 50s and 60s that people figured out how to uh, use containerization at scale as a way of solving some very significant logistical problems. And it uh, happened to coincide with changes in communication and information processing technology, which facilitated containerization. So we have, in sum, a huge increase in the added value of the distribution of goods around the world, as opposed to local production. Um, and and it, it's uh, not what we think of as high tech, but it really is very much based on a knowledge breakthrough that was implemented very concretely in the world. Yeah. So, okay, great. Maybe just, just to hold with this for, for a second um, before getting to some other terms. Um, you know, obviously, as you know, and the containerized shipping is a really interesting example. So, Knowledge has, and innovation and technology has always been part of the economy since fire, right? Um, and wheels and, and stuff, all of the basic mechanics, um, the printing press. And so what, what, is, what characterizes, you know, I mean, we could say that the, the you know, Neolithic societies were, knowledge, were, were knowledge-based economies to a certain extent in that knowledge and, and technology was absolutely essential to production at the time. Um, so what's different about today and the structure of our economy today? Is it just that the percentage of value add that comes from innovation and technology is so much higher? Is it that the pace of innovation and change is higher? Is it the way, the reason I brought up meta is that, you know, is there an element of dematerialization of the economy that didn't exist before? What, what is the, the character of the, you know, the kind of contemporary knowledge economy that's distinct from, you know, what happened in the, in the early 20th century or, 
what was going on in the early 19th century, for that matter, where obviously technology still had a huge role in structuring uh, uh, how economic activity functioned. So I think your first point captures it best, or at least it's the one I agree with the most. That's to say, it's not that there's anything really new under the sun about innovation as such, but simply its contribution to value added across the board in, in the world economy has grown considerably to a point where it's become uh, the driver of decisions uh, uh, to a much greater extent. I mean, Jack Goldsmith and Tim Wu's book about the internet back in, I think it was 1999, you know, they go back to uh, a press story in 1899 that talks about long-distance telephones mm -hmm. as an example of the dematerialization of society. Mm -hmm. And people regarded the uh, uh, invention of the uh, phonograph uh, very much the same way. Uh, so uh, there's nothing new about the dematerialization. What's new, I think, is just the scale of it and the growing reliance on it in the world economy. Got it. Okay, great. So then, so let's just get some of our other terms on the on the table. So um, another that is a big theme in the book um, is international liberalism, and um, you know that, that that's a term that's not totally coined here. But there are other phrases that sometimes stand in for similar ideas. Um, some of which uh, you don't like. Some of which I might not like. Uh, uh, but but other people love, right? So neoliberalism or globalization are sometimes used to describe similar suites of policies or institutions or occurrences or phenomenon. So why do you like international, what do you mean by international liberalism, I guess? Let's start with that. And then why do you like that as a description of, um, you know, the phenomena that you're interested in as opposed to these other terms that are, are often used? Uh, so there's always a risk when you try and push something that's not quite the mainstream term uh, that uh, you, uh, there might be confusion. Uh, uh, I might be accused of trying to evade some of the uh, unfortunate implications of some of those concepts. So the take neoliberalism, uh, the reason I don't embrace that is A, I'm not sure entirely what it means, mm -hmm. and B, certainly there are important sectors of the world, uh, including friends of ours, who consider it to be an epithet. Uh, so I, I'm trying to at least dodge some of the stigma. And globalizations, as I as I say, I, uh, uh, the problem with globalization, I think, is uh, that it is too much uh, too often regarded as an input when I see it as an output. Hmm. That is to say, uh, I see globalization as a series of predictable but by no means inevitable policy responses to certain changes in the method of production. So I see the knowledge economy as something that makes scaling – it does two things – one is it makes scaling more valuable because knowledge scales, right? It, it's mm -hmm. very expensive to produce, but very low cost to transmit. Right. Photograph so, is a good example of that. Yeah. Um, and, and the other, I think, important uh, aspect of the knowledge economy that we don't take into account often enough is uh, uh, its focus on talent as the principal uh, component of a person's identity, the knowledge economy thrives on talent. 
however you define it. And uh, a corollary of that is it's hostile to anything that gets in the way of the realization of talent. So uh, things that we, uh, I, I think, quite rightly have been seeking to uh, repress in the course of my lifetime, certainly, or racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, just to name the things that are most on people's minds today. Uh, there is a very strong justice case for those things, but it's, there's also an economic uh, case once you buy into the knowledge economy. They all get in the way of the realization of talent. Yeah. Uh, so we have these two features uh, which I think uh, the uh, reason that we have liberal internationalism is because knowledge scales and therefore we want production and markets to be international uh, because you increase the size of the market and the cost of meeting the demand from the increased size market doesn't go up commensurately because knowledge scales. And uh, uh, we want the uh, cost of production in terms of talent to be lower. And uh, one way to do that is to get rid of barriers to the expression of talent. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, all these things that we object to for many good reasons, they also happen to um, be rewarded by the knowledge economy. Great. And so and, and as part of that response, you said the reason we have international liberalism is, you know, because it, it essentially unfetters the knowledge economy or acts to reduce barriers to um, talent and scalability, which are um, kind of core uh, elements of the knowledge economy. So is that how, is that the worldview here that that's underlying the that's kind of informing your project is, you know, the kind of economic realities drove the political processes, maybe that, that then generated international liberals, which maybe we should just note what I, what I take that to be is, you know, essentially the set of uh, institutions and norms that uh, surrounded the, basically the global trade system with the WTO and that's the World Trade Organization and the GATT um, uh, at its foundation. So maybe we could just start with what are we talking about when we're talking about international liberalism and its relationship to trade? And then this kind of second question is, you know, there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship, or at least there had been a symbiotic relationship between the knowledge economy and, and international liberalism. And I guess, you know, which one's the tail and which one's the dog of that? Is it the policies that facilitated the knowledge economy? Is it the knowledge economy that then drove the policies or was it just a, a mutually beneficial um, feedback that was occurring over time? Yeah, since I'm not trained as an economist, I, I can't really uh, propose a clear causal relationship. I mean, uh, uh, I would refer your listeners to Brad uh, DeLong's uh, superb new book, Slouching Towards Utopia, which I, uh, I think goes into much greater historical detail than me and does propose a uh, causal argument uh, in which he links uh, – uh, the modern knowledge economy to a number of important things, including uh, corporate research, yeah. uh, as, as an example. But, but to answer your question as to what uh, we mean when we talk about uh, the concrete uh, expression of liberal internationalism, I think the four freedoms – uh, that is to say, freedom of uh, movement of goods, freedom of services, freedom of capital, and freedom of the movement of people across barriers. Uh, in, and the, the legal systems that have been de developed uh, uh, at least greatly enhanced since the start of the 90s, uh, although 
the concepts have been around much longer. And, and uh, the, you know, the EU is an example, uh, as was the United States, of implementing those freedoms uh, locally or regionally. And, and what we've been trying to do since the end of the Cold War is to extend those four freedoms to the entire world. Uh, okay, good. So this is the this is the project of of international liberalism, right? Is, yep. is to um, build and and but there's an institutional component to this, right? So it's you know that we could say substantively these are the um, freedom of movement of goods, services, capital, and people are the end goal. But there's then this uh, overlay of you know institutions and agreements and international law, right? Because at, at some level, that's a big focus of the book. And so what, I guess maybe that's the way to get at this is what role does law play in that? So there's, we've got the economy, right? We've got the substantive project of facilitating global movement um, and good services, capital and people. And then what's the, uh, the institutional or legal uh, manifestation of that? Right. So my intuitions are the, uh, form essentially by Marxism, quite honestly. That is to say, the one piece of Marxism that seems to me entirely right is that the base dictates superstructure. But having said that, I, I think that is a perspective. It's not objective reality. It's a useful way of making sense of the world for me, but I won't maintain that it's uh, uh, the only way of understanding these things. But if you understand that the uh, these ideas we develop about how to make things skew, change economic incentives, and then we design legal institutions to some extent to reflect those uh, incentives. We don't always respond to incentives, but we do a lot. And and to be concrete, you know, the institutions that were developed. Uh, in the two sectors during the Cold War, that's to say both the, the Soviet side and the United States on its allies and its allies built institutions to promote their separate conceptions of, of development, the four freedoms in the case of the West and uh, greater uh, central planning in the case of, of, of what I call the South if you can accept a South that includes the Soviet Union and China. Um, you know, that that what happened after 1989, and I'm being arbitrary in using that date, but it's vivid, um, is uh, is extending the Western's institu Western side's institutional approach to globally. So a uh, part of that is by accepting new members to the systems that had served the West, the GATT, uh, the World Bank, the Global IMF. Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, right? Just for our listeners. Yep. Yeah. The General Agreement on Trade yep. and Tariffs. Um, the uh, idea of investment protection through bilateral investment treaties that had developed uh, really going back to the 40s. Uh, but uh, it's really after the 80s that uh, it takes on, first of all, the new feature of giving investors a private right of action against states, which had not existed before, and, and to everybody joining in so that we take uh, legal projects that were regional and became 
increasingly global. I think human rights is part of that for um, many reasons, but one reason that I argue is tied to the knowledge economy is the point that suppression of arbitrary uh, obstacles to the realization of talent is a project of the knowledge economy. And I think that is one of the reasons, by no means the sole reason, one of the explanations for the proliferation of human rights regimes on a global basis. Right. And so, okay, good. So we've got this kind of like picture of the world. There's um, 1989, uh, we're moving into the post-Soviet era, the fall of at least European communism um, and and communism uh, in Russia, uh, where the, the institutions of broadly the West, including around this notion of liberal internationalism, um, and and the free trade regimes. So these institutions are then you know, expanded out to other fo- other parts of the world. And there was the idea that um, the, the rest of the, the system would follow, right? The human rights regimes, li- maybe liberal democracy, of course, that was the th- a theory at one point, is that uh, uh, Russia and China, after adopting market reforms, we're going to rapidly shift over to, um, or at least on some timeline, we're going to shift over to to a, a liberal democratic political orders, and and this was the vision, right? This is the end of history stuff, right? We're all going to uh, live in this world, and um, and the title of your book is the World Crisis. <laughs> so didn't, things didn't work out quite um, as planned, and part of that. Uh, I take your diagnosis is that there are, although the knowledge economy um, jibes, let's just say, who knows about causal relationship, but it jibes with uh, with the project of liberal internationalism and maybe the project of liberal democracy, human rights, and the like. That there are also features of the knowledge economy that undermine um, this project, or well, that that operate at cross purposes, at least to the institutions that are necessary to maintain the project. And so, so you mentioned scalability um, and. Um, in the book, you talk about locally concentrated benefits, and these come about because, um, essentially, because of the importance of talent and the um, the value of aggregation. So, good, talented people and uh, companies and institutions cluster together in cities, um, where then that leads to lots and lots and lots of productivity happening in those cities, and you have scalability. So, um, they can then sell their products to the whole world, and it's this kind of mutually reinforcing cycle. Uh, you know, an economist might look at that and say, that sounds great. So, so what are the, what are the downsides here that, that you see as, as ultimately having been a threat to the system? And and I I take it to be your claim that like, these are, these have threatened and will undo the system, at least to a certain extent. Well, at a minimum, they pose very serious challenges. Uh, You know, when you write a book for, uh, what I hope to be a uh, broader audience than the law professors I usually write for, uh, you know, you need to be vivid. And the cost of being vivid, I think, is that you you lose nuance, but sometimes nuance is boring. Uh, (laughs) uh, So uh, what I'm trying to do here is to say, we have some very serious challenges we're facing. And, and, and the purpose of the book is not to preach despair, but to say, let's face up to these challenges. Let's grow up here. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right that uh, I, I think one, uh, because I think it is true, knowledge uh, is transmitted best locally. Uh, 
that uh, this is an observation of Alfred Marshall. It's an observation of the new uh, institutional economists like Paul Krugman. Uh, you know, the insight is that you uh, the benefits of the knowledge economy are not spread evenly, but rather you have what we can call knowledge clusters. Uh, and uh, the sociologists in particular, people like Saskia Sasson, uh, earlier uh, Jane Jacobs, you know, focus on the rise of cities and Sasson in particular, global cities. And what we end up with is a uh, – uh, because of global economy, we have two complementary things. First of all, we divide the world into winners and losers. You know, the global economy is a great economy to work in if you're talented, uh, especially as it's working hard to erase the uh, obstacles to the realization of talent that historical, cultural, arbitrary, unjust practices erected. Um, and... and uh, People with talent and a service class that supports people with talent congregate in cities. I mean, one of the features of the global economy uh, that um, people like Sasson write about is that uh, we, the great global cities have vast discrepancies of life opportunity, of wealth, if you will, uh, Partly because the people who migrate to these cities uh, who are not the talented people, but people who simply are willing to do uh, tasks for a lower price than uh, incumbents, often immigrants, sometimes uh, in many cases, uh, both in the West and the South, there are people who have legally problematic status. Mm -hmm. uh, in China and Russia, they don't have local passports. Uh, in Europe and the United States, they are undocumented aliens, and the precariousness of their legal status, the precariousness of a life that's being restarted without uh, long c connections or broad connections makes those people vulnerable, uh, and, and, and therefore the cost of making the lives of talented people easier go down. And people are willing to do that because as exploited as they are in the great cities, it's still a better life than back in the countryside where they come from. Uh, I think that this is as true in China and Russia as it is in Europe and the United States, true in India. Um, and, uh, but when you divide the world into winners and losers and the distribution is local rather than evenly spread. So you have the people who are left behind, you know, the, the case and Deaton deaths of despair people, you know, the people who are displaced increasingly by the knowledge economy, but not prepared to move into uh, low reward service sectors and indeed instead have disruptive lives, disturbed lives, and uh, to trust uh, Case and Deaton's data, you know, often have very downwardly spiraling lives. Uh, and, and these people, the winners and the losers, live in different places. They are uh, creating political conflict, um, creating uh, division, uh, certainly in the affluent West, uh, you know, I, I see this. I think this is actually good data seeing this account as as uh, 
economical an explanation as any for both the Brexit vote and the Trump vote in 2016. Um, you can see similar processes elsewhere in the world. And, and it also encourages uh, uh, revisionism among the states that were historically left out of the rich West. So, that, you know, China is our best example, but India, South Africa, Russia, uh, you know, the so-called BRICS uh, are all seeking a revision in the international order that is at least in part a challenge to the legal institutions and commitments that undergird the international knowledge economy. Right. So there's kind of two forces simultaneously at work. I think that's one of the things that's interesting um, argument in the book and, and a way of framing the current moment. There's internal, um, you know, and there's always, of course, in conflict in, in democracies, right? But, you know, but, but there is conflict in, in, in de democratic states like the United States. There's conflict in Europe. Um, there's uh, anti-globalization in particular. Um, that's a term, right? We could say anti-international sure. liberalism, but um, just the notion of uh, skepticism and the EU about uh, Europe as, a, as, an ent as an entity, European Union institutions, obviously Brexit being the uh, extreme example of this in the United States. Um, both political parties now have moved, you know, there was a huge consensus, um, you know, extending easily through Clinton into, you know, Bush, Obama about uh, international, the value of the project of international liberalism. And now, you know, uh, the Trump severely disrupted that on the Republican side and and I think the Biden administration's in a very different posture these days than um, than even the Obama administration, which obviously the current president was a huge part of. So, um, so there's that on the one hand, and then there's these international players, especially you know Russia, China. You mentioned you know there's also Brazil, India, countries like South Africa. So, um, so then I guess the question, one question I have um, with respect to the second piece of this. So there's the there's the internal and then the, the within country, and then there's the kind of geopolitical, let's say, two different levels that kind of play into the same, um, you know, they're, they're forces that play into the same context. So um, you're a, a Russia expert. Um, that's the, we have you spent a, a big part of your career on. And, you know, we're obviously right now, you know, really crazy things are happening um, in the context of Russia. What, a question that I have is a naive question maybe, but um, maybe a way to get some traction on this is, why, why is Russia so interested in renegotiating the basic terms of this system, right? So like if international, um, uh, liberal internationalism is kind of a, a level playing field and it allows for countries to, uh, you know, maximize based on their, their comparative advantages and it's a way of, you know, increasing, you know, global economic output um, and, and, and the rest. Is it just that Ch Russia doesn't think it can compete in that environment? Does it think the rules are, you know, structured against it? Like what, it, what accounts for Russia's, um, you know, pretty substantial at this point, I think pretty clear oppositional, uh, 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 op, you know, the way it's kind of positioned itself vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the, uh, of the, you know, the organized economic world? Yeah, it's a great question, and I can throw out some conjectures, uh, but uh, that's all they are. I don't have any firm answers. I mean, uh, so uh, one of Russia's 
many tragedies. I, I've said before, you, you can't do Russia without living with tragedy. It seems to be what they ultimately do the best. Uh, so one of the tragedies, uh, probably inevitable, but that's what tragedy is, is a decision in uh, the 80s and 90s uh, to, uh, rather than find ways to build social trust or social capital. I think the latter is just an economic term for the former. Uh, I mean, Russia was historically a low social capital uh, country. It was a paradox because it was a high human capital country. That's to say, you, you know, a high investment in the development of talent and skills. Uh, but in a social environment that was really inimical to cooperative behavior, uh, which meant that the uh, pathway they chose in the 80s and 90s was resource extraction as the basis of their economy rather than, uh, you know, disruptive innovation and in production that would uh, – uh, make smart people better off, uh, um, that the definition of being smart in Russia meant being a better thief, a better embezzler, a better fraudster, rather than trying to create value or putting it differently, Russia's focus was much more on distribution of a fixed set of assets, many of which were in the ground, uh, rather than trying to come up with a value added. Um, and, and given the low social capital of the society as we find it in 1989, that may not be surprising, but it is really tragic given the huge resources of human talent that they could call on at that time. Uh, and, and China is a very di interesting, different – the contrast between Russia and China is uh, a country in China with uh, vast human resources – some of which are high human capital, but certainly just a lot of people. Um, also devastated in terms of social trust due to, uh, you know, decades of misrule under Mao. But they seem to find a way of reaching a social consensus starting in the uh, early 80s, uh, where it's been so awful following the Maoist path that you will trust us to go in a different path, even though it's a very traumatized, uh, harmed population. And and uh, they seem to have reached a burden where, uh, you know, we will trust our leaders, uh, maybe from a Western liberal perspective excessively, as long as they provide prosperity and the leadership understanding that prosperity based on knowledge is the real way of the future. So, you know, even by the end of the 80s, the difference between China and Russia was really quite striking. And under Putin, Russia has just doubled down on that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and indeed, uh, uh, I think China, I mean Russia, excuse me, Russia much more than China sees the social and political divisions in the West that are, I believe, in part a consequence of the knowledge economy as a vulnerability to be exploited. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, although China sees itself as our competitor and to some extent uh, the West's adversary, it doesn't, I think, interfere uh, with disinformation and, and provocative behavior of which the invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine is an ex the most extreme manifestation. Uh, the Russians are, you know, 
going for broke while mm-hmm. China is waiting for the rotten fruit to drop into their lap. Hmm. Hmm. Um, right, because I mean that you know the China. The, the, as you note, the story with China is just very different from the story with Russia. And, you know, the, the benefit of the, of the knowledge economy and the benefit of the international or the, the liberal international project for China has just been staggering um, in terms of the alleviation of poverty. It's like the, one of the most important stories in like the history of the world in terms of um, pulling just hundreds of millions of people out of dire poverty and, and, you know, uh, at least attending to their basic material circumstances. And so, so, you know, thinking about China, what, what is it about the, the, the institutions and the project, um, of, of the liberal international order that, that China, at least at this stage, um, seems to be placing itself again, not in such a hostile relationship as, as Russia, which is just, as you said, completely gone, gone for broke on that, uh, but still um, a very different relationship between the US and China and China international and the international system than there was you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, so it's very interesting. I mean, on the one hand, China, uh, although we're very wor- worried about uh, Taiwan, we have every reason to be worried about Taiwan, uh, uh, we can take a little bit of reassurance in China's cautious approach. Uh, I, I think China would much rather let chi- Taiwan naturally end up in its hands than to take a dramatic action, although the threat of taking a dramatic action of, of, of force uh, is uh, they certainly haven't abandoned that. Um, but I think they would prefer not to. While Russia seems to th- think it can get expressive benefits uh, through the exercise of force as it has done in Ukraine. So that's one difference. Another very interesting difference is that China uh, is, uh, on the case of the WTO, it's really trying to co-opt that so that the United, you know, the Obama... Trump and Biden administrations have at least one through line in international trade, uh, which is to get rid of the more formal part of the WTO, World Trade Organization, judicial system. Uh, And we do that uh, on our own, you know, with the Europeans in opposition to us. But we've succeeded in doing that. And China has responded to that by... uh, seeking to collaborate with the EU to create a substitute, ultimate judicial authority within the WTO to replace the one that was created in 1995 and that uh, the United States has gotten rid of. Uh, uh, China is trying to create its own World Bank as a substitute for the more U.S.-dominated World Bank. Uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, just looking at our own little world of law professors, China has really invested heavily in investment in trade, international law ec- expertise, hmm. uh, in a way that Russia has pretty much completely neglected those fields. Russia still does national security and human rights, sort of the old school international law. And, and they have not been much of a player in trade and investment law as well. Uh, so, you know, all this is consistent with the view that China is, uh, has a long-term perspective while uh, Russia, for whatever reason, seems to find itself 
cornered and uh, the only path forward for Russia is to try and exploit divisions both internationally and internally that it sees in the West. Uh, I mean, I this is kind of conjectural and, and uh, overstated uh, to look at the Crimean invasion as motivated in part by an attempt to drive a wedge between Germany and the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many other reasons as well, but I, I wouldn't neglect that as part of the explanation. You know, to, to get the West back on its heels. Uh, while China has done very little to get the uh, West back on its heels. I mean, even our, our favorite story of the last two weeks, the balloon, you know, that seems to have been a fairly innocuous intelligence operation, not a weapon system. Right. And, and I think generally, you know, if you think about it, we think espionage promotes international stability rather than undermining it. Uh, so, you know, I, although there's a lot of passion and rhetoric right now about the balloons, uh, you know, my own view is uh, I guess we're doing the same thing. I hope we are. Right. We, we better be. Right. Um, that's, you know, we, not to get sidetracked, but that's, that's such an interesting perspective from the from national secu- from folks who think about national security. Right. Um, that the broader public might not get that espionage actually promotes security because of course, you know, when everybody knows what everybody else is up to, they're less likely to get into like accidental um, conflict with each other or, you know, you know, start lobbying bombs at another person expecting them because they were about to attack when they weren't about to attack, like that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, okay. Maybe we just to transition this a little bit to the, to the subject of the, to the podcast, uh, more generally, which is, which is, um, environmental matters. Um, you talk about climate change a little bit in the book. Um, and, and just to add a little bit of context here to, you know, cause we've been talking about geopolitics and trade and, you know, internet, you know, uh, domestic, uh, conflict and dissent, you know, really, um, a lot of kind of the environment, uh, of the, of politics these days and how does climate change fit into the stories, um, and international and global pollution and global environmental issues generally climate change is just, you know, the leading example, there are fisheries, there's, um, there's plastics pollutions, there's other issues that we care about biodiversity, there's other issues we care about. So um, I think if I was going to tell a, uh, a story, an international liberalism story, or how climate change fits into that, it would be something like, you know, uh, you know at the same time that we were negotiating this, this liberal, this, this newest version of the liberal order um, with the WTO expansions and the, um, you know, the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union and, and integration of China into the, um, into the global trade regime, we're also aware of the problem of, of becoming increasingly aware of the problem of climate change. And the sol- solution that the kind of policy elite reached for very naturally was a global, was, was integrated into this mindset, this way of thinking, um, that we were going to use global institutions, uh, we were going to negotiate a, a treaty, and, you know, you could think of, uh, you know, the trade freedoms, goods, services, capital, and people. Well, we were just going to essentially add carbon into that. We were going to create carbon markets that would actually be global. Um, we were going to coordinate globally our efforts to address greenhouse gas emissions, uh, move emissions reductions to the cheapest places, just like we move the production of everything to the cheapest places. Um, and, you know, kind of f- shake out the distributional consequences of that. But but the kind of the theory of um, addressing climate change that was prevalent for quite a while 
while was very consistent with the institutions that, that you describe as, um, as liberal internationalism. And obviously that hasn't worked out at all. Uh, we don't have a, a global, really any kind of serious global system to address climate change. There's the Paris, Paris Agreement. Um, we can talk about that. Um, obviously, there's huge amounts of internal dissent along partisan lines on appropriate climate policy in the States, um, somewhat less so in Europe, um, although I think, you know, that, that can still be on the table to a certain extent. Um, and so so I guess the, just the, you know, the question back to you is, um, how, how do you see the current moment kind of... Um, informing what path we should take mo moving forward on addressing climate change, which is truly a global problem in scale. And it's not clear how without some forms of global cooperation, uh, we're, we're ever going to really um, get our way out of this. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, so I, I think we start with the claim that it is a collective action problem and that some kind of solution that involves coordinating behavior and creating the right incentives uh, for desirable behavior is essential. Uh, it, it is, I, I think, a problem where it's hard to see how a single uh, leader state could uh, all on its own fix it. I mean, I think the most we can hope for is uh, to create incentives for particular states to come up with innovative solutions. You know, I, I, I think one of the – I think, and I'm not the technologist that you are, Michael, and, and there's a lot I don't know. But my impression is that uh, uh, if you don't think the right solution is closing down the industrial modern economy – Right, which no one uh, does. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, then we have to come up with technological innovations and then apply them uh, to fix this. And, and perhaps as part of the solution, uh, you know, creating for incent incentives for states to innovate with these technologies and tolerating, rewarding them uh, for uh, their innovations. So I, uh, to get a little more law oriented and concrete, I, I see this kind of as the path from Rio to Paris. So I, th I think Rio was still informed by a sort of uh, international agreement on uh, uh, commitments that would have something of a legal nature and mm -hmm. aspiring to more. You know, so it was somewhat top-down in its aspirations, although mm -hmm. maybe not in its realizations. And what I like about Paris is it tries to sort out things we can do now and give some formality, some legal content to, from the things that we're just going to have to figure out. Uh, so as I understand Paris, and, and I know you have a much better grasp of it than I do, but just at a 30,000-foot level, you know, what Paris does is mandate transparency, but not commitments. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, some people think that's a cop-out, uh, and maybe it will turn out to be, but you can make an optimistic case for it as, uh, you know, the transparency means we know what other people are doing, including we may have a better idea of what other states are coming up with. And, and then we can, when we see what they can accomplish, we might be able to uh, try and surpass them and create, you know, a benign competitive environment about 
developing technologies that uh, I, I think it would have to be a mix of carbon reduction and carbon capture. You know, re reduction of the amount of carbon in the production process and new technologies that capture carbon that is extant in the world. And, and uh, uh, having some reward system, it doesn't have to be, you know, rigid patents or anything like that, but to have one reward system so you don't have to wait till you go to heaven to be rewarded for coming up with breakthroughs in these technologies. And, and, and at the same time, uh, hoping that we can come up with distributional effects so that uh, uh, countries that do the technological breakthroughs, groups that do the technological breakthroughs, uh, will be able to transfer their technology uh, without withholding it too much from other parts of the world that need to adapt it as well. Right. You know, uh, this is the problem we have with pharmaceuticals, right? I mean, that uh, uh, as we saw with COVID, right? We want to make the vaccines uh, available to everyone because we need herd immunity uh, on a global basis. But, uh, you know, we don't want to give away the vaccines for free because then we won't get vaccines. And I think that basic concept applies to the kind of innovations we need for uh, both carbon uh, reduction and carbon extraction technologies. And also, as I mentioned in the book, we need monitoring because, uh, I mean, one problem we have right now, I think, is there's too much scamming about, you know, carbon offsets that are really, it seems to me, some of them at least are, are, are kind of phony. And, 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 but we need to identify people who are really successful at reducing carbon and reward them. And we need technologies to, you know, to distinguish the scams from the accomplishments. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, so, so, so that's helpful. I, so I'm going to be the, the, the pessimist. You, you get to be the pessimist throughout most of the book. So I'm going to be the pessimist on, on the, on, on this a little bit, which is, um, so I d don't see the um, uh, dealing with climate change as kind of exclusively a technological problem. So, for example, um, you know, there's a lot of technologies that we know that we could deploy right now that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions at pretty low costs, actually, around the world. Um, and with respect to carbon capture and storage, someone has to pay for that, right? And there's always this problem, which is... The United States or any actor, California, Europe, China, whoever, any carbon that they reduce, that, so that any carbon that they don't emit or any carbon that they suck out of the atmosphere and store, the, the percentage of the benefits that they get from that activity, reducing emissions or storage or, or capture and storage, is, is small compared to the benefits that are generated, right? Because the benefits go to the whole global community. And this is just the nature of the public good problem um, of climate change as a global externality. And so, um, so there's always this problem of, of, of who's gonna pay for this stuff. And um, without, a, uh, without a global regime of some kind uh, that either caps emissions or put, places a price on carbon or places some kind of compensatory price on, uh, that pays for carbon capture and storage, that's just, it's just very, very hard to imagine how any of that would ever get deployed or, you know, even if the technologies existed and then of course the technologies aren't going to really get created um, until there's a financial system in place that will reward their ultimate deployment. So this is the tricky thing I think we where we find ourselves in. Now, 
part of, I take your reasoning to be like, look, we have to also take the reality of the international system and where it is and where it's likely to be, you know, in the, at least the medium term. And we can do what we can do, but we can't do more than we can do. So let's, let's think about how we can at least leverage the the tools at our disposal as, as best we can and not bemoan the fact that we can't do some other, you know, thing that might be great in an ideal world. So I guess that that's kind of my question is, do you see this, the next stage as, as kind of an intermediary period where we'll maybe fund some technological development, some countries will do some decarbonization, some more, some less, um, but not really under, you know, an incentive structure that's going to properly give, give um, you know, incentives to, to, to do those activities at an efficient level or at a good, you know, at a socially beneficial level. And then we move eventually to a, to a you know, the, where we hope that there will be a, a reconsolidation of the international order such that we could try to manage a more robust form of global cooperation. Or is it just, you know, is that the idea, the, the long-term idea, or we just need to do it as best we can with what we can right now and, and just we'll see how the future shakes out? Well, I, I think ultimately all we can do is the best we can. But let me throw out a few conceptual ideas that push back a little bit uh, on what you've said, although I largely agree with you. But this is the point I would make, that if we conceive of the problem as a pure public goods problem and we acknowledge that we're operating under a very flawed market for the government uh, piece of the puzzle is very flawed. You know, we're doomed, right? I mean, that uh, if the only solution ultimately is by government provision, yet we are living in a world of government failure, uh, boy, that's tough. Mm -hmm. So maybe we need to think about this in another way. And, and, you know, one of the interesting, this is where at least metaphorically, I think the story of the knowledge economy might come into play. I mean, for many years, uh, people like Marshall, uh, people like Solov thought that technological innovation was a public good and that ultimately you had to look to government to provide it or at least uh, create an environment that didn't get in the way. Um, and I think Paul Romer's, you know, Nobel Prize winning insight was actually you can incompletely monetize, but uh, technological innovation, but you can uh, give technological innovation uh, enough of a quality of an asset as to make uh, investment rational, even if you don't capture all of the benefits of that investment, that there is always with knowledge some leakage, but also some ways to, uh, you know, learn from doing in a way that you can be for a long time the technological leader. And and if we apply that model to uh, 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 combating uh, excess carbon in the atmosphere, well, uh, yeah, somebody has to pay for carbon extraction, but you know, if you are the leader in developing technologies, you can imagine a world where you can, you know, sell those technologies, uh, you know, either by outright or by lease, and and you can also, by investing in developing those technologies, learn how to do other things for which you'll get rewarded. Uh, um, uh, I can't say that's guaranteed, and so this is to some extent an expression of hope rather than a confident prediction. But I, I, I do think that uh, if we th think of creating a world 
where incentives are more likely to work to induce people to invest in carbon extraction and extraction and uh, carbon reduction. Uh, you know, we can get there sooner than relying on a system that's afflicted by government failure. Uh, and, and I think Paris is a roadmap towards that kind of world, although it's by no means inevitable. Yeah, great. So, um, yes, yeah, so I mean, it's very interesting and, 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 you know, you have to take the point at some level that if the instit if global institutions just aren't up to the task, we have to, we have to, <laughs> have to find somewhere else to go, right? That's just, yeah. um, uh, that's if, if you just find a river that you can't cross, you have to, you have to find another, a place to ford, so to speak. Um, okay. So, you know, um, Thinking about some of these institutions and, and, and maybe the, you know, uh, the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, um, one of the, um, the potential issues that you raise or the kind of forecasts that you make are that the EU itself and, and the WTO are very much imperiled, um, that these are institutions that um, they're, they're at risk, that, you know, maybe, you know, France could leave the EU. That would obviously be the disaster for the, for the, for the entity. So, um, so one question I have is just a little bit like, Maybe these institutions, how long, what's the natural life cycle of these? I guess that's the question. So maybe when they were, as, as the European Union institutions were being created and consolidated, as the WTO was being created, there was an idea that these would be very, very, very long-lived um, institutions, I think. You, you can actually correct, you, you, know, you know much more about this than I do. But my impression is that folks at the time saw these as you know, bedrock institutions that were going to structure international relations for a very long time. Um, and I, what we're learning maybe is that they were temporary. They were part of a system that existed for some time. They served a function. And maybe you know, there's just other institutions that are going to uh, you know, that are going to kind of come into being um, that will better serve the world that we live in now. Um, and I guess the question is like, how should we feel about that? Is, should we be, should we mourn the WTO? Uh, should we mourn the, the European Union if that's the way things are going? Or should we just accept that, that they served a useful function for a particular moment in global history and, and now there's going to be other institutions or, or other ways of interacting at least that um, hopefully will serve some of the same functions? Yeah, so, uh, you know, here I'm a Schumpeterian, if that's a word. That's to say creative destruction, uh, and I don't see why it shouldn't apply to international institutions as much as it applies to most human social enterprises. Uh, let me make what may be a far-fetched analogy, which is to the U.S. constitutional system. You know, we made our constitution formally extremely hard to amend, uh, uh, but, of course, we don't see rigidity. Indeed, uh, we f have an ongoing rewriting of our Constitution every time the Supreme Court is in session. And, and, and I think those two things are related. Uh, and uh, so with international organizations, the formal barrier to change is because they're treaty-based and because treaties, multilateral treaties typically require unanimity – uh, you know, there are a lot of veto points that make formal change of those institutions, whether it's the WTO or the EU, really hard. Mm. But as we've seen from, uh, you know, the U.S. approach to constitutional revision, there are other ways of adaptation. And, and, and we can hope 
that those institutions uh, can survive adapted. So, um, you know, if you think, for example, uh, that uh, the WTO system needs to revert to something closer to the pre-1995 general agreement system, which provided a lot of the same services, but without quite the legal rigidity, I mean, we can do that without you know, closing down the WTO headquarters in Geneva. We, we just, uh, what the United States has already done with the, uh, the so-called appellate body, the ultimate court of appeals in the WTO. I mean, we, we working within the system, we've destroyed that. And many people uh, deplore that, uh, but maybe that's really the right way to go. Uh, another thing that's happened in the WTO that I write about, you know, that uh, – uh, the United States has uh, embraced a position that uh, the first part of which I think is pretty solid, which is national security is a trump, uh, mm-hmm. and and B, national security is whatever we say it was, which was actually embraced by the Trump administration, but uh, has not been disavowed by the Biden administration. Now, from a formal perspective, that argument destroys the whole value of the system. What good is rules if any country can give itself a get out of free card by mm-hmm. saying national security, which is whatever we say it is? On the other hand, that can lead arguably to a different equilibrium, but not necessarily anarchy. Uh, I mean, there are disincentives to invoking national security. You know, you're losing opportunities to cooperate with other states. You're losing the opportunity to call out other states. So the fact that this uh, pull-the-plug option exists doesn't necessarily mean that it will dominate the system. Uh, Now, that's a WTO system as an an example. The EU, uh, how well will it adapt? I mean, it's facing real challenges and a change of government – France, for example, is, I think, the most likely, uh, you know, another election in four years and, and the Front National has gained every time it's been in contention. Uh, on the other hand, the EU might adapt itself to the point where it's no longer the bugbear that uh, makes it worthwhile for the Front National to call f- for withdrawal from the, you know. So there are ways of adaptation other than amending the treaty itself. And and our, our hope is that the participants in these particular clubs uh, can uh, find pathways to uh, respond to the challenges that uh, enhance their survivability. I mean, that's certainly what I would like. My, my fundamental argument is that doubling down on the importance of your status as an international organization and the importance of international law as a formal matter, that doubling down, I feel, is not often the right pathway to survival. Hmm. Well, these are incredibly weighty matters, and um, and the book is it's it's very illuminating. Um, you know, obviously, uh, listeners should should give it a read if you're interested in these in these questions, which we all should be. Um, Paul, thanks so much for having written the book, and and thanks so much for uh, chatting with me today. Thank you, Michael. This has been terrific. I'm in your debt. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.